So how many of y'all were around for the tent when we had the tent up last summer? Y'all remember the tent? So it was this 4,000 square foot giant $8,000 tent that was used that we bought from like a giant rental store in Chicago. And uh, we had it set up in the backyard. And uh, we used it for seven weeks. And we got shut down by the authorities of the land. And I remember thinking, uh, I literally had to sit on the stand and testify and get cross-examined. I'm not even kidding about that. Um, so it's all good now. But I remember thinking afterwards that, man, we wasted $8,000 on a tent. We didn't fill it up all the way. It was filled up about halfway last summer. But wouldn't you know it? We just got back from a, a trip to Louisiana where churches from all around the nation came, churches that we're a part of, an association. Uh, and the place that we were meeting in was the tent. And as we all sat in it, it was the exact right size for everybody in it. And this is now going to be the new meeting place of King's Harvest Fellowship, which is a sister church of ours down in Denham Springs, Louisiana. So this is now where they'll be meeting for the unforeseeable future. So praise God for things that aren't wasted, right? Amen. Guys, this morning we are going to be talking about strongholds. Now y'all have heard us talk about strongholds. Are y'all sick of hearing about strongholds yet? Okay, cool, cool. Good, good. Especially for this morning, good. The message title this morning is called Bigger Than You. How many of you guys have heard the story of David and Goliath? Yeah, David and Goliath. Cool, pretty familiar with it. Hopefully this morning you're going to look at that story completely different after hearing what we're going to talk about today. Make no mistake about it, I'm going to lay out my intentions for this message. My intentions are to bring us to a place, all of us in here, where we make a decision about Jesus today. I want all of us in here to make a decision about Jesus today. I don't want anybody to be on the fence, undecided. I want us all to have the opportunity to choose Jesus today. Maybe you've chosen him many times in the past, but I want us all today to choose Jesus. That's my goal. And as we dig into how the story of David and Goliath is way bigger than what we originally thought that it was. My hope is that you see how the fight for your life and the fight for salvation is so much bigger than maybe you've understood and why it's so important and so necessary for us to not just invite Jesus into our circumstance, but to join into his kingdom and do his will and his work. Amen? Let's go to 2 Corinthians 2.11. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, there's a phrase that catches my attention. Now it's talking about forgiveness for the sinner and we could go off on a tangent, but there's a phrase that's a principle 
that 100% not only has to do with the context that it's in, but is a principle that we need to understand as believers. Listen to this. I'm going to read it, and it's going to be like half of a sentence, but you'll still get what I'm talking about. In order that Satan might not outwit us. You hear that? In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now, how many of you guys have ever been interested in like demonic possession or how you get rid of demons or just at least like when you hear that, maybe you say, oh, I don't want to mess with any of that. But it's something that's like, I have no idea what that whole realm is even about. Or maybe you've like seen people that claim to have the authority on casting out demons and they've written books about it. And they'll talk about how to cast demons out of animals and how you can't just come against all demons in the same way, but it's got to be different. How many of you guys have at least been intrigued by that idea at some point in your life? Okay, cool. Cool. So this idea of not being unaware of the devil's schemes, you would fall into that category. How many of you guys have at one point or another in your life given the devil credit for some hardships that you're going through? Yeah, I would say most people, right? The devil's really trying to do this to me, right? And I'm not, I'm not trying to make light of that. Yes, the devil is trying to steal, kill, and destroy everyone in this room. That is for sure. But this idea of his schemes and his plans. Now, how many of you guys know that the devil wasn't born when you were? He's been around for a while. He's been trying to keep his kingdom together as much as he possibly can. What's the only threat to the devil's kingdom? Yeah, the testimony of Jesus. This is the threat to, Jesus, to, to the enemy's kingdom. So when we talk about the devil's schemes, we also recognize that we don't approach every single way that the devil is trying to destroy in the exact same way. I see that. I know that there are things that the enemy wants to have happen to my kids that are different than how the enemy might be going after Elder Mark. Right? There are things that the enemy is trying to do to Lily that are different than what he's doing to Kim. Or different than what he wants to do to Tony. We see that the enemy has schemes that he wants to use to steal, kill, and destroy. I believe that strongholds are a part of that scheme. I believe that there's lots of different ways that strongholds can be built. Let me give you the best explanation of a stronghold for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. Y'all know the story of Pearl Harbor, right? Pearl Harbor was a place where... Um, the U.S. could stock up. They could refuel. It was a stronghold. It was a place or a position for further advancement. And it was a fortified place. Okay? When it was attacked, the reason that it was such a big deal is not because that was the nucleus or like the center or the base of operations for the U.S. <coughs> uh, um, military. But instead, it was a strategic place that allowed them to launch attacks closer to their point of attack, right? Does that make sense? For instance, let's say that, uh, let's say that this is a stronghold right here. And if I'm over here, I'm located over here, and I want to attack the keyboard. For some, I just hate that keyboard, right? If I have to load up all my equipment, right, carry all my gear, 
and I'm walking all the way over here, and I got to walk all, by the time I get here, I might be out of fuel, right? I might be tired from it, and now I'm trying to launch an attack against the keyboard. Well, I'm going to be at a greater advantage if I can start right here. You see what I'm saying? And if I can just refuel and then just go, and now I'm just right here. So when I look at a stronghold, when I think about a stronghold, I think about a place of fortification that the enemy has where he can advance against us very quickly. Here's a telltale sign that you have strongholds in your life. If something happens, let's say that uh, you find out you're not going to have enough money to pay the bills. When you find out, how many of you guys, by the way, have been in that position? We find, uh oh, it looks like we're not going to be able to pay the bills. Seriously, look around. No, be, be honest. Raise your hand. Seriously, just participate for this one moment. Now look around the room. So most people have felt that feeling at one point or another. I don't think we're going to have enough money to pay the bills. Okay. And we react in different ways because I've been there recently. And now, now after the Lord has done some work in my heart, find out we're not going to have enough money to pay the bills. Praise God. He'll provide. That is one way to react. Another way to react is to go, how did this happen? How did we get to this place? What are we going to do? Can, can you pick up extra jobs? Lord, where are you? Why, why are you letting this happen to us? That's another way to react. If someone does something to irritate you or someone, uh, someone frustrates you, you can react and say, oh, you know, they're working through stuff. They got their own problems. It's okay. It's not going to phase me. Thank the Lord, right? That's one way to react. Another way to react is, who does this guy think he is? You know what? I don't even want to see him anymore or talk to him. He's always been this way, and I don't need that in my life, right? That's another way to react. A good way to tell if you have strongholds in your life is when something normal happens, that's a part of life, and you flip out. That's a good way to tell that you have strongholds in your life. Now... Remove spirituality from it, and let's just say that we, 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 we're all going to pretend that spirit, like none of this is real. What does that look like? Well, you go take a medicine. You go to a counselor, right? They try and give you things to numb certain parts of your brain or to stop certain things from happening up here so that that kind of goes away. But how many of y'all know that have been through that, it doesn't go away, right? In fact, over time, it, there, this battle goes on. It seems like that's actually getting bigger, and the medicine needs to be up or changed, right? Do you see what I'm saying? Because the medicine is not the solution. And the doctors know that. They, I mean, they know that, right? There's no money in solutions. So, but look, what I'm saying is this idea of strongholds in our life, if it is true, I'm proposing to you that it is. If it is true, and there are ways that we can go back and reconcile these things, not dwell in them, not dwell in these places and sit and blame daddy or mommy for the rest of our lives for why we're acting sinfully, but go back and reconcile these things. Then we can actually move from this category. Who does he think he is? What are we going to do? I don't know. I always hate this. I'm going to go to my own room. We can go from that place, right? To the place that says, praise God. He's going to bring the answer. He'll bring the solution. God is good. I'm going to love this person that hates me. Right? I'm going to trust them through this. Because this is the place that we all want to be. Amen? None of us want to be over here. None of us like that. Nobody likes being like that. 
And those of you that, that that's your way of coping, you regret being there, which makes you feel worse, which makes you react out of your own stronghold of depression. Right? And then it's this vicious cycle, and it's hard for you. And then after a few weeks, you kind of come out of your funk, and then you're you know, back to normal life, and you think, well, that was... No, you got tapped. The stronghold was there. You reacted that way because there's a stronghold, and then enough time went by that you kind of just moved on. Nothing was solved. There was no healing. You, are y'all tracking with me? Are we tracking together here? This is dangling, isn't it? All right. Let's go to 1 Samuel 13. I want to propose to you today, sorry about the volume change on the mic. I want to propose to you today that Israel as a nation had a stronghold. They were an established nation with a king whom God had delivered and given land. They had forefathers or patriarchs. They had a promise. They had a vision. They knew why they existed. They knew what they were supposed to do. And yet the story that we're about to read shows that something has gone terribly wrong. And medicine can't fix it. Let's look at verse 16. Saul and his son Jonathan and the men with them were staying in Gibeah in Benjamin, while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One turned towards Ophrah in the vicinity of Shual. Another toward Beth Haran, and the third toward the borderland overlooking the valley of Zeboim, facing the desert. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel, because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make their swords and spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plowshares and mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for repointing goads. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Now I want you to picture Israel. They're in their land. Let's picture this rug up here. Let's picture this rug up here is my land, right? Now God's plan is for only me to be on that rug. For me to be on that rug and to fully spread out. To get Lily, Caleb, Lindy, Lucy, right? Mom, dad, brother, sister, and spread out and fill this whole place. But what's the problem? I got a drum set here. I got a monitor. Got these other things. I don't know what they are. Microphone, wires, cables. So what do I have to do? I got to pick this stuff up and get it out of the way, don't I? So I can spread out. Well, the problem is Israel finds themselves here and the Philistines are there and all sorts of other Canaanite tribes are surrounding them. Well, they got to be able to fight. And not only that, but just to enjoy the land, they got to at least be able to have farm equipment. Well, to pay for their farm equipment to get sharpened or to get these tools, the Philistines charge them this outrageous price. For instance, let's say that this was an occupied land, Right. And we all need to get around in our cars. Okay, but the people who are occupying this land, instead of it being $2.35 a gallon, now it's going to be $40 a gallon. And that's our new reality. 
For you to get around, it's $40 a gallon. You think a lot fewer people would be driving cars? Would we be greatly limited? Yes, right? Would there be a lot less or a lot fewer cross-country trips? Probably so, right? We'd be talking thousands of dollars in gasoline just to get somewhere that's several hundred miles away. This is where Israel found themselves. The question is, how did it get this way? How did they end up in a land with these people oppressing them when clearly God was with them? God had given them victory over people like Jericho, people like Ai, right? We've seen them go place to place and they've destroyed people. And we've seen them defeat people that were far superior to them. What was the problem that they were having with the Philistines? The Philistines, by the way, their name means those who dwell in villages or foreigners. So picture them basically as people outside the people of God, not the people of God. We're going to go back and we're going to see where this all came from. Let's go to Genesis 21. Okay, so look at verse uh, 22 in chapter 21. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his force, Phicol kind of sounds like a medicine, doesn't it? I had to take 100 milligrams of Phicol. <laughs> it fits. God is with you in everything that you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me... And the country where you are living as an alien, the same kindness I have shown to you. Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me and I heard about it only today. So needless to say, they go on. Abraham is making a covenant with Abimelech and Phicol. Now Abimelech's name means, it comes from Ab and then Molech. Ab means father. Molech means king. So this is a father king or a king father. Phicol means the mouth of all. So Abraham, the Lord's servant, makes a treaty, a covenant with the father king and the mouth of all. Abimelech would become the leader of the Philistines. This was the people that he was uh, ruling over the people who would later be called the Philistines. So Abraham makes a treaty with him and with Phicol. Now that's already intriguing enough. The fact that he makes a treaty with him and he swears to treat him nicely. He swears to do right by him in the future. That's one thing. But here's the crazy one. Go to Genesis 26. How many of y'all know that Abraham's son comes along and meets the same guy. Now, some of y'all remember this story. Abraham comes to Abimelech and tells him that Sarah is his sister. So this is Abraham's wife. Tells Abimelech that Sarah is his sister. And Abimelech takes Abraham's wife into his palace. And then he finds out later that Abraham was lying. Well, in Genesis 26, 
we see that Isaac, his son, goes through the exact same thing. Look at this, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Look at verse 26 in chapter 26. So this is after he finds out. Isaac tells him, this is, this is my sister. Abimelech takes his wife as well. Exact same thing that daddy did. And then Abimelech finds out, hey, wait, this is your wife. And then Isaac and Abimelech have a conversation that's going to sound really familiar. Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his personal advisor, and Phicol, <clears throat> the commander of his forces. Isaac asked them, why have you come to me since you were hostile to me and sent me away? Now, already there. Is Abimelech keeping his covenant to Abraham? That he's supposed to be kind to him? Remember he said, be kind to me as I was kind to you. No, he's treating him with hostility. This is Abraham's descendant, Isaac. And he's treating him with hostility. They answered, verse 28. We saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said, there ought to be a sworn agreement between uh, us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you that you will do us no harm. Just as we did not molest you, but always treated you well and sent you away in peace. And now you are blessed by the Lord. Well, if you went to look in that story, they didn't always treat him with peace. But here's what's interesting. Ahuzath comes into play. So you've got Abimelech, which means the king father or father king. You've got Phicol, which means the mouth of all. And then Ahuzath, which means possession. You have the sin of the father, which is to come and lie about his wife so that the king or the foreigner... Right? The one who is outside the people of God. Let's just say that this is symbolic of the world or of Satan. And you now have the servant of God, Abraham and Isaac, making deals with these men. The father king with the mouth of all and then possession. And then what are they making them swear? We want you to swear that you'll do us no harm. We want you to swear that you won't go to battle with us. And why do they say that they wanted to make a treaty with them? Because we could see that God was with you. I'm going to tell you this. This is my story. This is your story. The enemy sees that you are with God and wants to come against you and proposes to you a deal for you to make at some point in time. Now, the circumstances surrounding that deal that you would make with the enemy can be different. Maybe in a moment of despair, you agree to a deal with him. Right? It was a well back then. Maybe for you, it's you got really, really frustrated. Maybe it was when you were a kid. Maybe you were really mistreated. Maybe you, maybe, maybe you were abused. Last week, we talked about rejection. Stronghold of rejection. Maybe something happened to you when you were young and a treaty was made, a covenant was made. The treaty that's used here, the word for treaty is an oath or a covenant. So you have these servants of the Lord making covenants with the king fathers of the foreigners, with the mouth of all. And possession happens. Possession of what? At least, at least of control, at least. Do you see this? There are ways that many of us in here have agreed to let Satan or this world have control of our hearts. We've made treaties, we've made oaths, and we've made covenants. Now, 
the goal today is not for us to sit here and dwell in the past and completely get consumed and confused and go round and round and never get anywhere with the Lord. That's not the goal. But the goal is to reconcile everything. Why? Because at the very base, every single one of us in here has been given the ministry of reconciliation. And to reconcile something means to put it in its right place. Right? On reconciliation day, everything gets put into its right category and its right place. And today, if you're with me, I want us to take any lie that's been sold to us by the enemy in the form of a treaty or an oath or a covenant, and I want us to put it where it belongs, in the fires of hell. And I want us instead to take up the truth of God and what he speaks about us. So here's the predicament. We have these treaties made by the representatives of the Israelites with the representatives of the Philistines. This is a problem because throughout the generations, what this is translated into, remember, Abraham, we're talking hundreds of years before Saul would come along. Because you got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then Joseph, right? And then Israel comes under Joseph in Egypt, and they're there for 400 years. They come out, they wander around in the desert for 40 years, and then they have judges, right, for some years. And then they anoint Saul as their king. So we got some time that has passed. And the fruit of this oath and this covenant has resulted in the Philistines being very strong. The Philistines are now very strong. And the Israelites are terrified of them. And the Israelites don't even have the right weapons in their hands because the Philistines have been given all the power. They live in this reality now of being powerless, of having no weapons, of not fighting, and of being relegated to their small corner of the carpet because there are foreigners or non-people of God that they've sworn allegiance to and they feel powerless to do anything about it. How many of you guys have ever felt that way? I feel like I don't have the right weapons. I feel powerless to do anything about it. I feel like there are, there are parts of my heart that I can't get control back of. And I feel like it has control over me. I'm proposing today, not that we take control, but that we give control to the one who really has it. If you're like me, if you're like me, I can be a little skeptical when I first read something. Because I know my own brain, I can run off with things and I'm like, ooh, then what about this? And then, and then this and then this. And I'm like, wait, let me just stick to right here so I don't go up on some sort of tangent and create some like new religion. So if you're like me, you're thinking, okay, wait, we're talking about these covenants. What if these are wicked people and this whole covenant thing isn't even real? And God doesn't really... He doesn't really expect, you know, us to honor those covenants or those things aren't really real or, you know, the blood of Jesus washes all that away. It's, it's, not, even, it's not even a real thing. I want, to, I want to give you a few verses just real quick and I'm going to give you one other story to show you that God absolutely 100% honors oaths and covenants and he holds us to them. So the answer is not to pretend like it doesn't exist or to ignore it. That doesn't work. Matthew 5, 33 through 37, Jesus is talking to the people, he says, again, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, 
for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus gives weight to the oath. He says, do not enter into oaths. James 5.12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Numbers 30, verse 2, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You should be careful to do what is past your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So let me ask you, the stories that we just read of Abraham and Isaac, did they make vows? Yes, they did. They both did. Who did they make vows to? Philistines. We see this. We all tracking? Let's check out Joshua 9 real quick. Because there's one other place where this is actually played out. And actually, guys, this goes so deep. Because several, it's not just the Philistines, several of the other tribes that occupy the promised land have backstories similar to the one with the Philistines where they made covenants with them. And they said, we'll treat you right. If you'll, if you'll do this, then, then we'll do right by you. And they find themselves stuck because they made all these promises and all these vows. Look in Joshua 9. So what happens? The Israelites start winning some battles. And these people called the Gibeonites hear about it. Look in verse 1. Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, those in the hill country and the western foothills and along the entire coast of the great sea, as far as Lebanon and list all the kings, they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. The men put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. What do they say? Make a treaty with us. The Gibeonites live in the promised land. Don't do it, Joshua. They're tricking you. It's a trick. But they don't see that. Joshua asks, who are you and where do you come from? And they give him the whole spiel. Look at verse 14. The men of Israel sampled their provisions, ugh, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. What happens? They're like, ha ha, we're actually the Gibeonites and we live in your land. You got tricked. So then Joshua hears about this and he's like, oh man. And he gets everybody together and it's like, let's go get them. And then when they get there, the Lord's like, uh-uh, you made an oath. You made a treaty. You have to protect them. They got tricked into it. And the Lord still holds them to it. This matters. Now watch this in 2 Samuel 21. Flip there real quick. 2 Samuel 21.
Look at verse 1. Y'all say there if you're there. There. Verse 1, it says, During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, It is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he what? Put the Gibeonites to death. They had a famine for three years in the land that was God-ordained. Because they broke an oath to a people that tricked them. You tell me that God doesn't honor oaths. David would be like, I didn't make that oath. If I were Joshua, I never would have done that. Too bad. Someone with authority made the oath. And now you are suffering the consequences of them not fulfilling that. I want to tell you that many of us in here today are living in that reality. David then goes on to say, Lord, what do we need to do? He brings in the Gibeonites that remain. And he says, what do you want from us? And I think they say seven or nine. What do they say? They say uh, seven of his, they said, let seven of Saul's male descendants uh, come to us so that we can kill him. And David says, do it. And he goes and grabs seven of Saul's descendants and they put him to death and the famine stops. Crazy. It was an oath. It matters. What's the only way that we can get out of these oaths? I want to tell you, the only way that the Israelites are going to get out of this oath with the Philistines is if by some God-ordained moment, a representative from the Israelites and a representative from the Philistines can come together and everybody can agree that this person has the ability to make a deal with this person. And then whatever that deal is, this is what will be honored by everyone. Let's turn to 1 Samuel 17. Look at verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Socha in Judah. Now, when you picture the Philistines gathering for war, I want you to picture them with legit weapons in their hands. All of them lined up. Probably looking a lot more uniform than the Israelites with their slings. Right? This is what they, they were using farm tools and slings and, and whatever they could get their hands on. This is how they were fighting battle. One looks a lot more legitimate than the other. But here they are. The Philistines have gathered for battle. They pitched camp at Ephes Demim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley in between them. Picture a giant hill right here. Picture another giant hill Right here. And then picture this giant valley in between. This is what the, the stage was. So all the Philistines over here. All the Israelites over here. And the stage in the middle. A champion. This word matters. A champion named Goliath. Goliath means splendor. 
He masquerades as an angel of light. Who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. Remember, the foreigners, those who were not from God. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head. Remember, bronze means what in the Bible? Judgment. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat, scale, a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. And on his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. Bronze, 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 bronze. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. He had a separate dude carrying his shield. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your su subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. What's happening here? All of the sudden, after all these years, with Abraham and Abimelech, Isaac and Abimelech, and all of Abimelech's one-sided treaties, now, all of a sudden, we have Goliath standing there, nine feet, six inches tall, a representative of the Philistines, standing there doing what? Making a deal. I'm ready to make a deal with you guys. I'm the representative of the Philistines. And I'll tell you what, if we beat you, then you have to be our servants forever. No more of this, maybe we're supposed to be good to each other stuff. But now it will be clearly defined. You're going to be our servants, period. But if by some chance you're able to beat me, then we will be your servants forever. Up until this point, the Israelites have never been able to dominate the Philistines. They've never been able to beat them in battle. They've constantly been frustrated. And they live in terror of the Philistines. But all of a sudden, they have an opportunity to get out of this terrible deal. How many of you guys have ever entered into a deal and you're like, that was a terrible deal. I wish I could get out of it, right? You feel really good when you can get out of it and it stinks really bad when you can't, right? Now, all of a sudden, the stage is set for them to possibly get out of this deal that has lasted for hundreds of years. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest, which meant he was the eighth son. What is eight the number of in the Bible? New beginnings. So Jesse takes David, and he sends him off to go and bring his brothers some food. Look at verse 32 in the same chapter. So David goes there and he hears about this deal. Now David's, at this point, 14, 15, 16 years old, somewhere around there. Is anybody in that age range around here? Anybody? Stand up, Anthony. Like this. Goliath, nine feet, six inches tall. Keep standing. 
is like this. <laughs> Goliath has a shield that's probably as big as this dude, carried, carried by another person. And David comes out and says, hey, what's going on? And they're like, well, there's a deal that Goliath, not that it matters to you, right? There's a deal that's going on. If someone can beat this guy, then he won't have to pay taxes forever and neither will his father's house. And, you know, they're going to be, they're going to be our servants. But I mean, David, don't, don't worry about it. Look, we're, we're trying to focus on watching what's happening here, right? David comes up and says, hey, I'll go out and fight this guy. Don't let anybody lose account or lose heart on account of what this guy is saying. Look at verse 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Oh, that's, that's sweet, David. But no, son, thank you, though. Thank you, right? No, no. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight with him. You're only a boy. And he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Saul tries to put his armor on David. This is so many layers deep. You, right now, with the strongholds that are in your life, God has been faithful to you already. How many of you, how many of you sitting in here, as I'm talking, you're like, I think I, got, I, think I may have a stronghold in my life. How many of you are thinking that? Be honest. Please don't be ashamed. I think, I'm, I, think I may have a stronghold in your life. Now, same people, has God ever been faithful to you? Now you're like David. Because you're seeing this stronghold and you're looking at it and you're going, I don't know if I can, I don't know if, if we can defeat this. I, I, I don't know what to do about it. And God is saying, didn't we defeat the lion together? Didn't I give you strength to defeat the bear? This will be just like it. Just like it. Watch what happens. Ver verse 41. I look at verse 40. Then he took the staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones. Some would say it's because Goliath had four other brothers, which is true, from the stream and put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome. I like how I threw that in there. I wonder if David was kind of saying, say, say that I was ruddy and handsome. Saul, he was ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Remember that line. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, 
the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. You would think that David would approach with some timidity. Um, uh, so how does this work, Goliath? You, you know, do we, should I start back here? <laughs> Why is David not acting like that? Because he already knows the outcome. The outcome is victory for the people of the Lord. The outcome is victory. This is what the Lord has decreed. David's job is not to understand all the ways that this is going to go down. Only that there is an opportunity for us to get out of this deal where we've been slaves to these foreigners for so long. God has decreed that this is the way that it's supposed to be. And we have got to get out of this deal. And if no one else will stand up, I'll stand up and do something about it. The valley lies in between them. Goliath stands on the other side, taunting all of Israel. He did this for 40 days. There's that number 40 again, a time of testing. And he stands there and he taunts. And all of a sudden, God doesn't use the tallest, the strongest, or the most experienced. He uses someone with a childlike faith that says, God has given me victory before and he'll do it again. And this giant will fall just like all the other animals that have fallen before me. God is faithful. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, what does David do? David doesn't just walk towards him. He runs towards him. And he slings the stone. And it hits Goliath right in the head. You know the story. And with that, all of a sudden, these people that are watching from this side and watch this happen, all of a sudden realize what just, what just happened. This has been, and they're waiting there as David walks over, takes Goliath's sword out and chops off his head. And then he holds his head up high. And the Israelites see that for the first time, no longer do they have to be friends with these guys anymore. No longer do they have to let them take up the carpet anymore. Steal these pieces of their heart or cause them to live in fear. No longer, all of a sudden, this is their new deal. Victory. These are now our servants. And we will have dominion over them. And the Israelites chased down all the Philistines. And for the first time, we see victory for the people of God over the Philistines. The covenant has been broken. This is what God desires for every one of us. The first step. Identify the Philistines. Come on, who is it in your heart? What is it in your heart? What peace still belongs to that old father king of the world? What peace still belongs to that mouth? What peace is still possessed by the enemy? Do you want freedom? Do you want freedom over that? Because I'm telling you, God is saying, 
You don't need a big old sword. You don't need all that armor. You need what I give you. I am faithful and I am with you and I have decreed victory over you. I have given you the ministry of reconciliation. It's our job simply to identify, come to the battlefield, and then race out to meet the enemy. That's our job. Turn to Revelation 19. I want to tell you that the picture of what happened with David and Goliath was a shadow of what will happen as Jesus returns as the rider on the white horse with the armies of heaven. There will be a battlefield and on one side will be the Antichrist and the false prophet and all of the armies that are with him. And all of the power of Satan, the Bible says, is given to the Antichrist. So the Antichrist stands there as the champion of men. And then Jesus, who according to Matthew 28, has all authority to represent men and those that are born of the Spirit. Jesus with all authority, given by God. And the Antichrist with all authority, given by the king of this world, or the prince of the power of the air, the king of the men's hearts who have not chosen him, the mouth of all, the one who is possessed by the power of of Satan and this great battle will prove to be nothing more than a small obstacle for Jesus to come and overthrow in an instant just like David and Goliath let's read in verse 11 I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true with justice he judges and makes war his eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, not afraid, not sitting and waiting as the enemy taunts, but ready, armed for battle and following closely the king. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter and he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair. Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. This time, who is doing the taunting? Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. It's not even a fight, guys. You see, that day, David was able to take back the authority which had been given away. Because the perfect moment was created by God so that his people could be free. On the moment that Jesus returns on the white horse, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, 
the perfect opportunity for his authority to be shown and displayed over the entire earth will be created. And the Antichrist, who is man's representative, will be overthrown like that. It won't even be a fight. I am telling you, he has authority right now. We don't have to wait until he comes on the clouds in glory. He has authority right now. Worship team, if you could come and just begin to play for a little bit. What I want us to do today is I don't want a single person in here to feel incapable, ill-equipped, or unable to deal with the strongholds that are in their hearts. But even more importantly, is if you have not decided to follow Jesus and you are here today, then I want to create an opportunity for you to do that. Because when we think that life just is this way, that these problems that we deal with just exist, and there's nothing we can do about it besides maybe get some medicine and some counseling. If we've relegated ourselves to that, I want to tell you we're no different than the Israelites having to go to the Philistines and pay to get our farm equipment sharpened. That's not the life that he has declared for us. He's decreed for his people victory. The first step is if you have not made him king of your life, then his authority is not at work in you. The first step to complete freedom and to receiving victory is to receive Jesus as your king. Let's stand together. Mark and Brenda and Manuel and Lauren, could you guys come up front? Just to pray with people. Don't wait another day to choose Jesus as the Lord of your life. A decision in a moment is just that, a decision in a moment. The walk of following Jesus is filled with difficulty but it is the way to life there is no other way the world would try and convince you otherwise but I promise you it's a fake it's a phony don't fall for it it's another treaty it's just another oath and you don't need any today if you want to make Jesus king of your life then come up and don't be afraid Choose to make him Lord of your life today. Don't be afraid. We're not going to bow heads and close eyes because that's not the way that the world works. You walk out of here and the battle begins. But right now, if you can feel him pulling on your heart, don't reject him. Don't stiff arm him. Come and make Jesus the Lord of your life. If you're in here today, and you know that there are strongholds that are in your life and he has been identifying them and you want things to be reconciled and made right come up to the front and let's pray and Jesus will run like David across that field and will strike down the enemy in your heart 
Don't waste any time. Don't waste any time letting the Lord break those strongholds that are in your heart. Come on up. Don't waste any time. Don't waste any time. This is what he is doing. This is the victory that Jesus is giving his people. If you want freedom, if you want victory, Jesus is ready and willing to break all the old contracts and all the old covenants that you've made. And he has the authority to do it. He doesn't play games. He tells you the truth. Even if the rest of the world has lied to you, he tells you the truth. And he is speaking the truth in place of lies today. Come as the Lord leads you. For the rest of you, you're free to pray and leave as the Lord uh, lets you.